1945 in July. In Potsdam, Germany, the U.S. Allied forces, Allied forces with U.S. leaders were gathering together to figure out what to do with the final Japanese threat of World War II. The leaders had determined that they needed to draw a firm line in the sand, and what came out of that decision was what was called the Potsdam Declaration, which essentially said to the nation of Japan that if you do not stop and unequivocally surrender this war, then utter and complete destruction will follow for you and your people. That this was this very serious kind of line drawn in the sand, and it was sent to the, to the nation of Japan and to the generals and leaders there. And in Tokyo, just a couple weeks later, reporters gathered as the Japanese premier uh, Suzuki walked out and was kind of giving a press conference. And in the midst of the press conference, the reporters wanted to know, what's the Japanese leader's response to the Potsdam Declaration? Because the Allied forces have made it very clear that if we don't surrender, utter and complete destruction is going to follow. And the Japanese premier looks at the reporters and utters this one simple word, makusatsu. The one simple response to that question. The international reporters present that day pick up on that word and begin to send it back to, to the nations abroad that were part of the Potsdam Declaration, the ones who authored it. And what they heard in the midst of the international reporting of it was that Japanese premier had said this declaration, this one word, was not even worthy of comment. That's how they had translated makusatsu. Was, it's not even worthy of a comment. Well, naturally, the Allied leaders hear that response, they read it in the newspapers, their intelligence agencies are repeating what they had heard in the press conference, and they just saw it as another typical example of that kamikaze spirit that had dominated the Japanese army during World War II. And that moment was very decisive. Within 10 days of that, that word being uttered in Tokyo in a press conference, Hiroshima would be completely leveled by an atomic bomb. But here's the challenge. Makusatsu has another way of being translated. In fact, it's a little bit more common way of being translated. It's that typical politician response. When they've been asked a question they don't have an answer to, they say, no comment. See, makusatsu can, can mean this silence with contempt, the way the international reporters reported it, or it can just simply mean no comment. Because at the time, if you go and look at the context, what was happening was that the Japanese government had not actually decided what to do yet in response to the Potsdam Declaration. They hadn't determined were they going to surrender or were they going to continue to fight. And in that moment, the mistranslation of the word makusatsu made the decision for them. And within 10 days, the atomic bomb, which had never been dropped, had only been test tested, completely leveled a city, and within a few days later had leveled another one, and the Japanese surrendered. The intelligence agencies, linguists, this is one of those common, um, this is like a well-known story in those small circles of people who deal with international relations, diplomacy, and translation. It's considered to be one of the most tragic mistranslations in human history. Because of one word mistranslated, a decision was made and dominoes were put into effect that completely, utterly destroyed a city. 
And as tragic as that sounds, I think on, on so many levels, you and I probably can relate to that. Because don't we have the same struggle when we speak the same language to people? That there are times where we know the words, we understand the language, we live in the same culture, and yet in that moment when your child says something to you or your spouse utters those words that you hate so much, war breaks out in your household too. Because sometimes no comment can hit you so much harder than just simply no comment. And if you and I are going to experience peace in our relationships with others, if you and I are going to begin to experience a reversal of this bad blood that can easily fill and destroy relationships, it begins with us looking at the lesson of July 1945 with one word that was misspoken. And out of that lesson, realize that there's a deeper lesson, a lesson that was spoken almost 3,000 years ago by a guy named King Solomon when he wrote a simple proverb, a simple saying, that out of that one simple saying, I want to give you a question. That by the time you leave in 20 minutes from now, that you'll have this one question to ask yourself the next time you find yourself in a situation where bad blood is about to be spilled. This question that Solomon gives us that still speaks 3,000 years later. If, if you heard Jason earlier, he said uh, in Counter Church app, and we use that app to kind of allow you to collect your notes, but also to be able to kind of give you the Bible passage that we're going to be using. And so if you want to go ahead and open up Encounter Church app, you'll find in the message notes or in the Bible portion is already the passage I want to dive into today. The passage is in chapter 18 of the book of Proverbs. I want to set the context while you're getting your phone out or maybe flipping to it in the Bible. Um, the, Proverbs 18 has a few passages. These Proverbs is a saying, um, you know, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. That's a, an idea of a cultural proverb. Solomon was considered to be one of the wisest men who've ever lived, and he wrote thousands of these sayings down. People would travel from all over the world to come and listen to his wisdom. If, if he was alive today, he would be the one guy on all the news channels being invited in to give kind of his opinion and his feedback on whatever happens to be the cultural or political issue of the day. Like this was Solomon. He was that expert. Everyone wanted to know, what do you think about this? And fortunately for us, God and his kind of just wisdom allows Solomon to write these words that are divinely inspired into this letter that we now call the book of Proverbs. And it started off as a parenting guide because these were the words oftentimes he was teaching his son. But fortunately for us, we still have them. And 18, chapter 18 is filled with a lot of different ways, a lot of different passages that talk about communication. But in 17, he gives us um, a framework that I want to pull and tease out some. And by the end of the day, give you a question that I think that you and I can actually start applying today on the way home. That it's a question that can unlock and prevent bad blood from even occurring. It's one that it's really simple, and in its simplicity, you can dismiss it. But by the end, hopefully you and I will be, wow, this can actually make a difference. Proverbs 18, 17, I'm going to read it. In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. That's the, that's the proverb. It's a really simple proverb. On the surface, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with relationships, but Solomon like most of his sayings, the moment you press into them and start to reflect on it, the moment it starts to unlock. That was the way a proverb was typically written. It was meant to be thought about, and the more you thought about it, 
the more its meaning would come alive. So what Solomon does is Solomon sets this context for us. He, he chooses to give you this saying, this idea in a courtroom setting, which is quite fitting, right? Because most of our intense conversations that turn into confrontations feel like you're in a courtroom, right? It feels like one of those dramas where you can't handle the truth gets uttered at the end because both parties are just so angry. And you look at each other and you're like, why are we in this courtroom to begin with? It's also fitting because many of us have grown up in homes where relationships ended up in the courtrooms because their conversation consistently became confrontations. And so Solomon uses this very wise backdrop of a courtroom to teach us this very valuable lesson about listening and about conversation. And he says, I want to give you two dynamics. There's two dynamics in this passage. These two dynamics make the difference between a conversation becoming a confrontation. The first dynamic he gives us is this destructive one. He says that in a courtroom, the first to speak seems right. That in our conversations with one another, in our dialogue with one another, it's the danger of that first moment when something is said of thinking you know what was meant. That the words get spoken and you're like, oh, I know what you meant there. Oh, I, I see what just happened. I can't believe you just said that. That the first statement being uttered, there's pride, there's knowledge, there's confidence, there's this, mm, I know what just happened. And many of us, like we have those moments where someone says, like my daughter yesterday, who um, I was trying to teach her about the nation of Japan. I was like, hey, we were on, it was in the back of her cereal. I don't normally sit down with a globe. Um, that's the periodic table. And just walk through things with her. But it was on the back of her cereal. And I was like, oh, that's the word Japan. Do you know what Japan is? That's a nation. And she didn't respond. So I said, um, you know what Japan is? It's a nation. It's, it's a country on the other side of the world. And she's like, I heard you the first time, Daddy. And I'm like, well, did you hear this? Go to your room. Right? You know, like that's what wants to kind of well up inside of you because this one simple statement, I did not say that, but that one simple statement, it does something. Right? She just, she just uttered the words, Daddy, I heard you the first time. Like, you don't have to repeat. It was in her mind, quite convenient. Father, no need to repeat yourself. My ears gleaned your wisdom the very first time you spoke it. I'm sure that's what she meant, right? But she made sure that I understood that by repeating, Dad, I heard you the first time. But we all have those moments where what is said and our first take on what just happened seems right. And in that moment, I could have responded like, what typically would have been a very natural response of saying, she's disrespecting me. She's getting sassy with me. Oh, no, she didn't. And it turned into World War II. And by the end, she's going to her bedroom, and I'm sitting in the living room, and I'm asking myself, what just happened? Have you ever found yourself in those moments where you're arguing, and you look, and you go to bed, and you're both upset, and you're like, what? What started that? And by the end, it's a comment's turned into a character assassination. Right, and it's mother-in-laws being drug into it, and always and nevers, and like, and all of a sudden, it's like one comment brings up decades of frustration. And this is what Solomon's saying. He's like, there's a danger, this very destructive danger of in that first moment, just being confident you think you know what just happened. It's like a story a friend of mine told me when she was in middle school. Uh, her mom was 
sleeping, and she'd already asked her mom, hey, I want to I go to the movie with my friends. And so she kind of kept asking her mom, hey, mom, like, I told the movies tonight, can I go with my friends? And mom gets frustrated and finally says, well, what's the movie? What's, what's the movie's name? And she's like, 10 things I hate about you. And the mom jumped out of the bed, starts chasing her daughter, pulls off the belt because she thinks her daughter just said to her, 10 things I hate about you. Well, her sister hears the conversation, runs in the room, and while the mom is chasing my friend, her sister is behind her mom saying, no, mom, that's the name of the movie. This 10 things I hate about you. And in a moment, this comment, this mom receives it like, 10 things I hate about you. She just didn't realize that was the actual title to the movie. This destructive tendency that we have to just take everything at face value, not realizing that there's a lot of things happening behind our face in our brain that's working against us. That's so fast, so subconsciously easy that we can miss it. And so what Solomon does for us is he gives us another dynamic, another way of approaching that's actually constructive. Right? He says that it seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. That this idea that in the courtroom, this person, this witness describes what just happened and everyone in the courtroom's like, oh, that must be it. And then someone steps up and says, but tell me a little bit more about what you heard. Describe the scene for me in a little bit more detail. And in the midst of that second person cross-examining, all of a sudden, a different part of the story begins to emerge. And this is a little bit of what Jason alluded to last week, that empathy is essential for understanding and working through bad blood. That this other person stepping in and introducing a different perspective actually starts to bring the picture into greater clarity. And that what seemed so right at the first time starts to be a little different by the time the full picture comes out. That there, it takes humility and it takes listening and it takes empathy, like Jason said last week. But what I want to do is give you an illustration, give you a visual, because what happens is that uh, oftentimes, like any of those moments that you can relate to in this, it's very fast. The statement said and it's like instantly the emotions come and you respond. It's just instantaneous. And what happens is that there's a whole thought, thought process happening underneath the surface. And that to, in order to kind of press into this and start to be more constructive in how we deal with these moments and prevent them from turning conversation, becoming a confrontation, it requires us understanding the thought process working against us underneath the surface. So to illustrate it, I'm going to borrow a, an idea that um, an organizational behavior psychologist gives us and it's called the ladder of inference. Um, Chris Argus, who works for Harvard, that uh, kind of came up with this idea. This is called the ladder of inference. And then Peter Singe, in his book, The Fifth Discipline, actually presents it as an organizational learning tool. But I would actually argue it's not just good for organizations. It's really good for relationships in general. And it's a really healthy framework, really helpful framework to understanding what happens in those moments. And it's kind of fitting that it's a constructive dynamic. So here's something we might see on a construction site. So the way it works is that to understand the ladder of inference is to realize that oftentimes this comment that becomes a character assassination, a statement's made, and your response up here is actually not as instantaneous. There's a bunch of steps in between. That what we think is one step from here 
to here is actually five steps total. And when you understand that there's five steps, it gives you an ability to press into those moments and actually deconstruct what's happening in a way that's constructive. So the first thing that happens is this. This is the facts. This is what happened. This would be akin if someone was in that moment with you, whether it's with your child, spouse, or coworker, or a roommate, that this moment is what someone with a video camera would catch. This is what the, the news footage would show. It's very objective, very facts-based. What happens is we go from facts-based to the second step is when we begin to filter facts. We begin to select certain things. We begin to emphasize certain things. And we begin to de-emphasize other things. So certain things about that statement, certain things about that moment, certain body positions, tones, all these things start to be teased out and you focus and you filter it. Then you make the second jump, which is you begin to apply meaning. So we've moved from the world of external reality to now it's in your hand, like it's, it's in your brain. And now you're starting to assign meaning. A, a, a really good way to know that you've kind of jumped to this level is when you say, well, what do you mean by that? Right? When someone simply says, are you going to wear that dress? And you're like, what does that mean? What that means is that you're on the third rung. That's what that means. Is that you've now filtered out other things you filtered out the you look lovely or the, the singing or I can't believe we're excited, whatever. You filtered all the other details out. Now you've jumped to the focused, well, what does that mean? And then you jump here and you start to draw a conclusion. You, you say, okay, I know what that means. And you draw a hard conclusion around that and you form a belief. And all of this from here to here is happening behind the other person's head. It's all in their brain, and you can't see it. And the person you're in conversation with, they can't see it happening in you. And that's why oftentimes in those moments, you and I get blindsided, because what we see is the final step, which is action. An action based out of the conclusion and the belief that was formed from the meaning that was gained through the filtered, focused statement of what was the facts. Now, let me give you an illustration. Let's say, because it's going to be snowmageddon again tomorrow or the next 24 hours you decide to do what other people do that have always confused me in life they rush out to buy milk and bread i can tell you as a person who eats regularly that if i'm ever trapped anywhere milk and bread are not the things i'm going to ask for or want right but anyways but let's say that you rush out and you decide we need milk and bread you, you leave the church, the pastor preached a great sermon, the band was phenomenal, your kids had a great time, you get in the car, and it's like all the universe is aligning with you because you pull up, the rain, snow's coming down, your kids are in the back, and they're starting to get hangry, but you know you've just got to go and get your milk and bread before everyone else gets the milk and bread from you. And then a spot opens up. Woo! Awesome. Right in the front of the grocery store. You see the car backing up. You're, you, man, you're, you're even like singing. You're not rushed. You're like, everything's working my way. You wait for the nice car to back out of the way and pull off. You don't want to be drastic. And all of a sudden, bam, somebody steals the spot. They cut right in front of you. So let's use that for this. So the facts. You're down here. You're sitting in your car. Your kids are hangry behind you. You really want to get into the grocery store, and this spot's just opened up. And all of a sudden, someone pulled into the spot. Now what just happened in that moment is you begin to filter. 
you begin to focus. What you see now is when they pulled into the spot, you saw their face. You saw your eyes and their eyes. You know it locked, which means they saw you. They stole the spot from you. They saw your kids. They saw them screaming. And that jerk stole the spot from you. And someone needs to treat and teach them a lesson like your parents taught you a lesson, which is that people should be respected. And then you end up pulling up behind them and you scream at them and your kids scream at them and everyone's angry. And now they know that they're the biggest jerk on planet earth and you hope they choke on their bread. (laughs) That's what happens. That's the ladder. Someone pulling into your spot, which was never your spot, right? Didn't have your name on it. That's your filter. But what happens is in that split second, your kids go from screaming to you go from screaming. And that's us discovering the latter. So how do we work? How do we do what Solomon said, where he says that it seems right until someone cross-examines it. And the way we do that is that we shortcut. We start to work our way back down the ladder. We question ourselves. So here's the question I want to give you, this one simple question. When you find yourself up here, ask, what did you hear that brought you here? You brought, what did you hear that brought you here? What's the assumption? What was the conclusion you draw? Well, the conclusion was that they're a jerk. Why did you think they're a jerk? Well, they're a jerk because they looked at me. And if they saw me, that means they saw me and my kids and they didn't even care. Well, do you really know if they saw you? Do you actually know if they saw you? Well, I'm not 100% sure. I saw them. But I'm not sure if they saw me. And in the moment that you ran up that ladder, the same way you can actually go back down. And you could turn off the filter, see that there's another parking spot just as close, and pull in. So that you and that person don't end up behind each other in line with all your milk and bread and that very awkward interchange of just waiting. But we do this. We do this all the time. And what's tragic is the same way that one word spoken by the Japanese premier, led to war. We say words that get misunderstood that lead to war too. A war and destruction that quite honestly never even needed to happen. And the reason it happened is because we ran up the ladder because we just paid attention to the first dynamic in this passage and not the second. And the second one is to simply to ask the question, next time you find yourself up there, say, what did I hear that brought me here? Because that question, that, that simple question has the ability to transform, to disarm, to disengage that confrontation that could have come from a simple conversation. And if we are willing to ask that question, 
willing to have the humility in those moments to ask that question before we just run up that ladder, what you and I can find is that it's not just war that's at risk, but it's peace too. And that you and I can begin to experience the peace in our relationships that God has promised, that God is, holds out for us, not just a peace in a relationship with Him, but a peace that transfuses and fixes and filters into all the other relationships around us. And that that starts with us saying, what did I hear that brought me here? 